praise you, O God. In our mind's eye, we are brought through the course of redemption in songs like these, recalling in the Garden of Eden, when man fell into sin, skins were provided, slaughtered by your own hand to cover them. We move forward through the story of Abraham, where he is led with his son in tow to the hill of slaughter. He tells his servant, in three days we will return. A ram is provided, a substitute in the bush, and Isaac's life is spared. We go through the course of redemptive history. We see even on the deck of Jonah's ship that the mariners throw Jonah himself overboard. The sea is stilled and they are saved by the death of another. We move forward until the incarnation itself where now the Son of Man representing that Lamb of old who was slain and whose blood was spilled upon the doorposts that the angel of death would pass over. Now John the Baptist points to this one God in flesh, man among us, and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Christ's blood was shed on Calvary and for every saved sinner in this room whose life has been transformed by the power of that blood, we worship Him today in these songs because He is our substitute. He is our Savior. And this morning in communion, we see a picture yet again of the substitute, Jesus Christ, Lamb of God, whose broken body and blood shed paid for our sins once and for all. Thank you, Father, that full and final sacrifice has been satisfied the wrath of God is appeased and our salvation is absolutely secure write this upon the table of our hearts as we hear your word proclaimed instruct us in your holy scriptures and leave it upon our souls Lord such that the enemy and doubts cannot erase the reality of Christ's death burial resurrection and ascension for us we thank you that the Spirit is pleased to use these means to equip and encourage us in this meantime until you usher us into glory. Now open our hearts and our ears and our minds to love, to understand, and to proclaim your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. The privilege of sharing in the Scriptures today for us as His church has been paid for by the same blood shed for our salvation. And so this is an expensive and glorious privilege and gift for us to share in the Scriptures together. To do this this morning, I'd like to call your attention to the book of Hebrews and ask you to turn with me to chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5-11 through 11 will be our text this morning. And this message comes to you under the title, The School of Suffering. The School of Suffering, how suffering itself, more specifically the discipline of the Lord, is a training ground for the believer to prepare him for what God has designed him to be. The School of Suffering from Hebrews 12, 5-11. Let me give you an aim for this message today. You could write this down or if you have a copy of your notes, uh, notes printed in the back, it'll be on the bottom of your page. The aim of this message today is to remind us that our souls, to remind our souls that is, that sorrows and suffering prove God's love for the Christian. Sorrows and suffering prove God's love for you if you are a believer in this room today. Is that a surprising statement? 
Does that come to you as sort of a shock? You know, so many of us try to avoid sorrows and suffering, do we not? They seem, they seem like the last thing from our wish list. But Hebrews has a message for us today in chapter 12, 5 through 11. Proving to us that the sorrows and sufferings by God's design, the discipline that he sends us through, actually prove his love for us. Would you stand with me with your Bible open and let us behold the holy word of God today. As you stand in reverence and fear for the immortal word of Christ, let us behold this text. Again, Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it reveals, it yields, the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Do you recall the beginning of this chapter? 12.1, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. He goes on to employ an analogy. He says, listen, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Last time when we were in this passage, we talked about this analogy of an Olympic event or something of the kind, where there's a race the Christian life is like a race. Those who have preceded us in faith are listed in chapter 11. They populate the stands of glory. The starting line is regeneration when God saves our souls. The finish line is obedience and faith after salvation unto glory when we cross that line and are welcomed home upon Christ's return or our death. And this is basically the analogy laid out before us. So given that context... In light of this race analogy in the opening chapter, or opening chapter 12, it seems appropriate that the author of Hebrews would extend this athletic metaphor to illustrate rigorous, behind-the-scenes training required to finish the course with honors. Everyone who has trained for anything or anyone who's interested in sports has likely heard the cliche phrase, no pain, no gain. What that means is if you want to prepare to do something exceptional, it requires a sacrifice, an investment, and indeed hardship, pain along the way. So the metaphor of the rigorous behind-the-scenes training, or, or the uh, behind-the-scenes training, if you will, is we could see as an extension of this race metaphor. How do we prepare for running the race, as, Paul, or as the author of Hebrews describes in 12.1? We do so by recognizing the purpose of the discipline of the Lord. 
to train us to run well, to exercise our spiritual muscles, to prepare us to stand strong even when the going is tough. So in so doing, our author today underscores a recurring theme of Paul's epistles, perhaps the most recognizable and beautiful summary of this aspect of the Christian life is featured in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Here the apostle, the apostle declares, we do not lose heart as we realize the following. This light momentary affliction, that's how Paul describes the discipline of the Lord, painful sorrows, sufferings in this life. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Three glorious words paired with three glorious words. Light, momentary affliction, pair them against eternal weight of glory. Eternal weight of glory makes light, momentary affliction worth it. That's Paul's message. He says, this glory is beyond all comparison. This, he stresses, is possible as we look to things unseen, learning to live in light of eternal realities. I was doing some reading in preparation for this message, and there's a little excerpt from the register of the Company of Pastors of Geneva in the time of Calvin. Boy, that's a long title. But think of it as a sort of journal of the evangelistic efforts of the Reformation. Or recorded in this journal was a story of five young students who left, presumably, to study and to proclaim the Word of God. And as God's providence would have it, got in trouble for doing so under the current conditions which were hostile to the gospel. And history records them writing a letter back to the church in Geneva to explain where they were and to encourage the church that their faith was yet strong. Where were they? They were awaiting their martyrdom, likely burning at the stake in prison. And this is the letter they composed, these five young students. Well, the letter included this phrase, quote, We testify that this is the true school of the children of God, in which they learn more than the disciples of the philosophers ever did in their universities. Prison awaiting martyrdom, they recognized as the school of suffering. They said, as we await our death in prison for the faith, we have realized that God is using these circumstances as the necessary discipline to shape us into the image of Christ. And they recognized that this was a superior teacher than any of the lauded professors and the glorious academicians that they could be studying under in the scholastic era of the highlight of learning in the late medieval era. So they went on to distinguish, these students did, between the theory and the practice of God's Word, recognizing that they were realizing the value of the latter. Be not just hearers of the Word, but doers also. Not hearers only, but doers of the Word. And these students, faith in the principle which we are expounding today, they had faith in this and it gave them courage to endure, waiting, rotting in a cell, approaching the stake because they knew that God had a purpose to shape them, to train them, to run their race of consistent confession, assurance of salvation unto glory. The finish line for them was close at hand indeed. No reason to let off their pace 
only reason to increase. Brothers and sisters, with the help of the Word of God, may our response to excruciating trials be similar to this. Our author in Hebrews makes the case for the value of discipline by emphasizing three things, revelation, sonship, and fruit in our text today. He makes an appeal to revelation, an appeal to sonship, an appeal to the fruit of discipline. So let us consider these in context. Back to our text today, Hebrews 12, verse 5. Our author records, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? With that introductory phrase, he calls the church's attention to prior revelation, to the word of God which was in their hands. He calls their attention to Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. And then he cites those words verbatim. This is from the book of Proverbs. My son, in verse 5, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Let us note the attitude of the author to the scriptures. The scriptures, he assumes, are a self-attesting authority. He takes the book of Proverbs as not just a collection of interesting sayings from an ancient king to an ancient son for a particular time and place, but they are more. He takes the Proverbs as the voice of God to all mankind at all times. If we are going to realize the value of discipline today, God's way of shaping us into His image, we must have this same certainty, this same high view of Scripture. All of Scripture, all of the counsel of God is the voice of God to all mankind, to all time. The Proverbs speak as loudly to us today as they did Solomon's son then. Now, as he touches on this quote from the Proverbs, we are reminded of a central theme that is emphasized through the entire book. If you look in Proverbs, you'll see in chapter 13, 24, the use of the rod, the use of discipline to shape the child in a way that will begin to put aside the aspects of his character that are sinful and begin to strengthen the aspects of his character that need to be reinforced, refined, taught, strengthened, exhorted, and encouraged. Chapter 22, 15. Chapter 23, 13. There are many references in Proverbs to this idea of discipline. That is the value of discipline in building the son. So from the book of Proverbs to the book of Hebrews, the scriptures declare the value of spiritual disciplines in building the son. In Proverbs, it's the son of the king. Solomon's son needed wisdom and discipline in order to take on the responsibility and role of his dad. For us, the relationship of son to father is more amazing indeed. Our father in Christ is the king of kings. And we as his son are being built through his discipline to take on the role of co-regency. That is ruling and reigning alongside Jesus Christ, representing his word and obedient to his commands. As we look closely at verses 5 and 6 in Hebrews 12, this citation from Proverbs we find a beautiful bit of Hebrew poetry. Now, Hebrew poetry, I'll teach you something a little bit about it today. Not This is something we have emphasized before, but 
If you look at Hebrew poetry and if you identify the different thoughts or different ideas, that's kind of the way the poetry rhymes. Rather than words sounding similar, similar ideas are paired next to each other. And this is a sterling example, a classic example of this. Notice what we can do in mapping this little piece of poetry. My son, do not regard lightly. And if you take that, do not regard lightly, that injunction or that command and just mark it as an A, that could be our first idea. Do not regard lightly. And then the next phrase, the discipline of the Lord. That next idea would be the B. So, so far we have our attitude toward discipline and secondly, discipline itself. Then the third, nor be weary. Well, that again would be our attitude toward discipline. So that's A, when we prove by him. That's idea B, discipline itself. If you can't follow this, that's okay. Or if it gets a little confusing, I'll summarize later. For the Lord disciplines, that's discipline itself, the one whom he loves, and this is a new idea. This is the attitude or the heart of the father to the son. The one whom he loves and chastises every son, that's discipline again, or every, or chastises, as we could say, that's discipline again, every son whom he receives. We have three main ideas in parallel. In summary, the ideas are this. Proverbs declares the attitude of the well-disciplined son, the act of discipline, and the heart of the father. The attitude of the son is one that we see here where exhortation is warranted. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. So the instruction is to the church, the Hebrews at this time, to Solomon's son in Proverbs, to us today, is two things in regards to our attitude towards the discipline of the Lord. Number one, do not regard it lightly. Do not take it lightly. Number two, do not grow weary under it. This is the heart or the attitude that we are to retain the sorrows, sufferings, difficulties, and trials that we endure. Think to yourself, what might it mean to regard lightly, to lightly regard the discipline of the Lord? Well, it could be as simple as when bad things happen in life, things that you in your flesh would prefer to avoid, walk a long way around them in order to not have to deal with the sorrow, the disappointment, the pain, the anguish, the fear, the discouragement. As we're going through these things, the inevitable course of the disciplinary path that God leads us through as His sons, we might be tempted to despise our path, our lot in life. This would be to regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. We might dismiss it, deny it, put it out of our mind, pretend it's not there, confess happy thoughts, grit our teeth, smile in spite of it, put on a fake face to others, not seek the encouragement and exhortation, the lesson that's to be learned in it, and the fellowship of the brethren through it. And in so doing, we regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. To not realize its value, its purpose. That in fact, if God loves us, He will treat us as sons, and this is part and parcel to His relationship to us. If we resent it, we would treat it lightly. If we oppose it or condemn it, we would treat it lightly. So it's important to watch our attitude. Do we have the attitude of a son who's mature enough to realize 
that he needs correction from time to time. That he needs difficult things in his life in order to shape him and hone him so that he puts aside the superfluous things he would otherwise pursue in light of Christ alone. Think of our uh, series in Jonah. The word of the Lord comes to the Ninevites, and yet in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Uh, that's discipline, if you ever heard it. The word of the Lord coming with promise of destruction. But what does it lead the Ninevites to do? God, in His providence, is sovereign in this, and He changes the heart. So the attitude of the Ninevites is one of a disciplined son. They actually put aside their idolatry, they put aside their pursuits, and they take up fasting and sackcloth. And they realize the value of the word of the Lord, reminding them that if they forget in their life, their heart, and their lifestyle, the sovereign God who rules over all, there is a reckoning one day, better to reckon, <coughs> better to reckon with that now than on the day of judgment. In his appeal to Revelation, secondly, the attitude of the Son is featured firstly, but secondly, the act of discipline itself. The act of discipline is described in Proverbs 3, 11, and 12 as cited in our text. The discipline of the Lord, reproof by Him, says again the Lord disciplines and chastises every son whom He loves. So two main ideas, reproof and chastisement. Reproof is a strong, direct correction. It's one that our modern culture would consider absolutely offensive. What right do you have to tell me that? Would be the rebellious reaction of a self-centered child or a self-centered uh, childish person to the act of reproof. Chastisement, of course, is loving punishment, not meant to destroy the soul on account of what they've done, but to train the soul that the direction that they're heading is one that is hell-bent, destructive, and outside the bounds of God's safe covenant-keeping, or God's, the safety of God's covenant, reproof and chastisement. The Scriptures itself reprove us. Shame on any preacher who only goes to his favorite texts that he thinks will make his congregation feel good about themselves. Why do I say this? Because when Timothy himself was instructed by Paul... We find that the role of his, and his duty indeed, his role as a preacher indeed, was to bring the reproof and the chastisement that the book of Proverbs prefigured. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And so we embrace in part the disciplining hand of the Lord. When we listen to the hard, <clears throat> excuse me, the hard texts proclaimed from the pulpit and we let them cut deep and bring conviction in areas where our attitude has been poor about the sufferings and sorrows, the trials that we have had to endure. He goes on in 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season and listen to the role of the scriptures in the life of the church. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will endure, not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
Paul prophesies of a time where the attitude of the son sours and he runs away from home, as it were, and seeks for himself other illegitimate relationships where people pretending to be a father tell him things he wants to hear and the kid ends up being raised on candy and follow your heart instructions and in the end it's his absolute destruction as the only thing he learns as essential to his manhood is indulging every passing fantasy that comes through his mind and putting all his energies into self-fulfillment and idolatry and he begins to believe the orig what original sin kind of uh, wrote on his nature in the first place that you are the center of the universe and it's absolute spiritual child abuse to indulge the child or the childlike heart with the notion that this is all about you. Instead, the discipline of a loving father comes in the form of reproof, chastisement, of rebuke, exhortation, with complete patience and teaching, with reproof and exhortation so that he might be equipped for every good work. But this doesn't come at the hand of a hard-driving taskmaster. We have also, in this beautiful piece of poetry in Hebrews 12, again, this threefold picture, attitude of son, act of discipline, and heart of the father. And the heart of the father is as follows in verse 6. The Lord disciplines who? The one he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. The one he loves and, as, and the son whom he receives. This leads me to our next category, which is the appeal to sonship in our text today. Do you look at yourself as a received son or daughter to the Heavenly Father? As one who can say that God truly loves me and you can cite as proof the difficult things that He has led you to that cause you to cry out to Him and rely on Him more? Listen, their, their author of Hebrews goes on, there's an appeal to this idea of sonship. Notice in verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. There's an appeal, there is reference in our text to our status as the redeemed in Christ. Our status is a family relationship. We are adopted heirs. We are grafted in. We are in family bond and union with the Godhead as the redeemed. When we are in Christ, as children of God, we have a new father, a new family. We have a new status in Christ. The doctrine that is, that is implied in this context is adoption. Adoption is a beautiful biblical concept. It is one that is absolutely saturated with grace and mercy. It is an absolute reality for all who are in Him. And to the degree that you understand it, you understand that you are a received son who is loved by the greatest, perfect, ultimate, and only Father of fathers, God the Father Himself. This idea of adoption 
comes to us, expounded in Ephesians, the first chapter. We won't go there today, but if you wanted to dig into it more deeply, you would see that the work of Christ on Calvary was a price to pay for your adoption, your reception, receiving, being received as a son, as a daughter to God Himself. This picture of adoption draws on a picture provided by way of illustration in provisions of Roman family law. Roman law allowed a man to declare his desire to incorporate within his family a child that didn't have a father or mother to make them his own. And that process included the love, the care, the commitment, the provision, the protection, the inheritance, the legal rights, the whole package. So after adoption was secure, under these conditions, There was virtually no difference between a biological son and an adopted son. The only difference was perhaps that grace and mercy is evident in a unique way in the one, even as grace and mercy is also evident in the other. It's evident in adoption. Our status was not always this way. In John 8, 42 through 44, Jesus is quite candid and says, You are of your father the devil, speaking of those who did not follow him nor his teaching, to the Pharisees. And so each one of us are born this way. We are born as children of the devil. Our father-son relationship is as dysfunctional and horrific as you can possibly imagine. We follow the whims of our fallen heart and we embark upon a life of self-justification and we indulge whatever sin, the social you know, uh, environment allows us to indulge without getting in too much trouble until, I don't know, psychopathy takes over and then we just give ourselves over wholly or until God lets us become abandoned to our foolish desires and we prove that we are children in every way of the devil as we indulge the wicked fantasies that drive us from the cross into absolute self-destruction. But you and I, if you are a believer in this room, our nature has been changed. By the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel when we confess faith in Christ. And when we were born again, we were born into a new family. We have a new father now. We were adopted. And so upon this appeal to sonship, our author says, remember your new status. You're adopted sons of the Father. And He disciplines you because He loves you. He goes on to say, that this necessary action of decent parenting, discipline, actually is definitional to legitimacy. If you are a legitimate son, you will be disciplined. An illegitimate son suffers the loss of this necessary training ground. Suffering as a Christian, another way to say this, or another way to look at this truth is that suffering as a Christian certifies your family status in the household of faith. Listen again, suffering as a Christian, the felt discipline of the Lord should assure you, it should certify in your soul your status as a legitimate son adopted by the Father. This is the point. As we see in verse 8, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Hervaeus, an author, he says, it is fathers who have hope that chastise their sons. Those whom they see to be entirely beyond hope and intractable, they leave to do as they wish. 
The son whom they chastise is the one for whom they keep the inheritance. At the time when these words were written, Roman nobles, you know, rich, well-to-do Roman men would often have many illegitimate children because of the profligacy, because of the immorality of that culture. Now, typically, what would happen is each one of even the illegitimate children would have financial support. He would write his child support check, he would write out his alimony and send it to all the illegitimate children. But in the case of the children of the nobleman's legal wife, it was different. Not only was there financial support, but there was a strict regimen of training and discipline. Galatians 4, 1 through 2 actually compares it to slavery. It is hyper-controlled conditions to shape and train this young man to be a man of character, in stewardship, self-sacrifice, valor, honor, of course, in the ideal situation. So by very definition, even in this culture, the difference between legitimate and illegitimate is one just gets a paycheck to subsidize his profligate lifestyle. The other one is supported in every possible way, materially and immaterially, in his soul and in his basic physical needs. So this is the picture, the appeal to sonship. The author is saying to his, this church that he's writing to, he's saying some of you want all the blessings of Christianity with none of the difficulties. Some of you want to hear messages of some type of prosperity-like gospel where the promises are restricted to a life of ease and overflowing wealth, happiness, joy, fulfillment, success, celebrity, or you name it, whatever the culture values. And he says to them, what you don't understand is that if that is all you experience, you are illegitimate children. You are not true sons and daughters. So cursed be on any message along those lines. And blessed be the message of the full gospel which says, Legitimate children are entitled to both the blessing of the financial provision of the father and the necessary chastisement and discipline that will shape him into the image of his parents. In this case, Father God. This is the appeal to sonship. There's an argument from lesser to greater finally under this point in verse 9. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? We all recognize good fathers when we see them, those who have half a brain, half their wits about them. And we honor that. We say that's a great virtue. Do we not do the same and more with God as He trains us? They discipline us for a short time. It goes on in verse 10, as seen best for them, but He disciplines us for our good. In the best judgment of the best example of an earthly father, he is limited to, in his understanding to, I think this is best for my child, not knowing fully the status of his child's heart and having limited abilities to address them. But in the best possible scenario, God himself exceeds the best case worldly father, or earthly father by, by, multitude, by a multiples you cannot even calculate. Why? Because he has every tool and every ability at his disposal. And he knows you inside and out. Every fabric of your entire, every fiber of the fabric of your entire being. Appeal to revelation. Appeal to sonship. 
And finally this morning, appeal to fruit. Recognizing or making the case for the value of discipline, our author does this by appealing to the fruit. This will produce something. Verse 10, the second half of this verse, we see the fruit kick in or the acknowledgement of the purpose or end for which God trains us. It says, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Think of those three words, share his holiness. Is there any price to pay too great to share the holiness of God, the creator of heaven and earth, the designer of redemption, the alpha and the omega, the architect of new Jerusalem, the one who shapes history to his maximal glory and redeems for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and causes the earth to flourish with testimony to his creative power and the very creatures that sing his praises, the trees that clap their hands, and the oceans that rush with just a fraction of his might. Wow. If we could but share his holiness, it seems that any price is worth that reward. Verse 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. So two phrases indicating the fruit of discipline. Number one, share His holiness. Number two, peaceful fruit of righteousness. Holiness, peace, and righteousness. The treasure chest of riches, which is presented with the lid lifted to the believer that recognizes the value of the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We remind our souls in this text today that His sorrows and suffering prove His love for us. They prove His love for us because of the goal of these sufferings, because of their purpose, which is fulfilled in us as we embrace them, sharing in His holiness, becoming more like Christ, loving His word and law, having our attitudes shaped more into our worship text this morning, which was an ode from Psalm 119, just a fraction of that longest chapter in the Bible, which extols the virtues of the law of God. If you don't love the law that much... Wouldn't you like to share His holiness, to know what the author of Psalm 119 felt when he gushed over the precepts of the Almighty? Embrace His disciplines, and you will. Wouldn't you love to know the peaceful fruit of righteousness? Those whose pockets are padded, we're familiar with these. We live in a relatively affluent area in this Cross Lake area. It's a vacation destination place, and many people have secondary homes they don't need, and they're garnished with all the amazing and trendy uh, you know, uh, things that we like to indulge ourselves with in, in, in this life, lifestyle of kind of uh, late country vacation opulence and ease. But how many of us work for individuals like this, and once we really get to know them, holiness, peace, and righteousness don't really define their character at all. In fact, rather than peace, the richest people I know are often the most stressed out. The more they have, the more they must manage. The more they have to manage, the less ability they feel they have free to enjoy the things they have. And they dig themselves a hole of absolute dead weight as the nice things of this world build up around them so high that it chokes out their very life. 
A man can stand so deep in gold he can't even breathe anymore. And that's basically the picture of the American dream in its worst form. Bury me in gold so deep I can't move and I can't breathe. Is that the goal of life? No. The goal of life is that we might attain that for which a perfect and holy God has designed us for, to worship Him in spirit and truth, and to enjoy the peace that passes understanding, to have the assurance of life and glory eternal, and to know that Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us in His death on Calvary, and by that salvation, we will attain these things. This is a school of suffering, and this is the fruit of embracing it. In closing... What about the painful moments that you've experienced lately? What about those painful moments? If they're not upon you now, when they come. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. This week, the week before, the week before that, it seemed uncanny to me that I fielded three or four phone calls of painful moments, and that's an understatement. And what I found myself doing in each phone call is going back to this text. I said, I'm sorry for what you're going through. I can't imagine the burden, but I do know a sufficient source to get you through, and I do know a sufficient purpose for which it was designed. And although what you are experiencing in your painful moment now seems absolutely excruciating and suffocating in its pain, and indeed if you're called to bear it in the flesh alone, it would be, it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness if you are trained by it. And you will come to share in His holiness if you embrace it. We have precedent for this. In verse 2 of our text, looking to Jesus, chapter 12, verse 2, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the discipline of the cross, if you will, that is the pain of the cross, unto the promise of His receiving a kingdom, ruling and reigning at the throne of God, at His right hand. And because He set His eye on the joy before Him, He was able to endure the excruciating pain of nails and hands and feet and thorns crushed in brow and the side pierced with spear and lacerations draining out His life's blood. And so can we endure the discipline and hardship, the sorrows and sufferings, for the joy set before us. And this joy set before us is a promise that if we take this as God's directing, direct uh, disciplining hand and His direction in our lives, we will soon share in His holiness and we will enjoy the peaceful fruit of righteousness because we have proof now that we are legitimate sons. As we remind our souls that sorrows and sufferings prove God's love for us. Let us transition in prayer. Oh Lord, we are so thankful for the exhortation and the promises of your holy word. We thank you that in this text, in these texts that we have before us, recorded by your providence, your sovereign hand, inspiring your servants, we have sufficient grace by which to stand. And Lord, we have a glorious purpose for this life that we can walk in having been ransomed by Christ's blood, and we have even the overflow of joy to share with others when we realize the power therein contained. I pray that you would help us to do this today. 
in the hearing of your word, by the activating power of the Holy Spirit, and in the participation at your table. In the name of Jesus, amen.